As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff, and ad-free versions of all The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com forward slash league show. Hello, welcome to this week's Totally Football League show, Extra Time. I'm Ali Maxwell, here with you today to talk all things EFL, and I'm joined, as ever, by my right-hand man, the Ryan Hardy, to my Luke <laughs> Jeffka. It's George Ellick making the unselfish runs to draw defenders away, create the space for me to finish. Hello, George, how are you doing? Yeah, I think that's a fair comparison, because you're destined right to the very top, and I'm probably destined to stay in League One. So, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Hey, what's on the show today? We've got loads of stuff. We're bringing you our weekend previews with matches that will hopefully go ahead. It's always hard to tell at the moment. And Ali, you've been talking transfers with the man who is integral to bringing Emil Smith-Rowe in at Huddersfield, mm. so we'll get to that later on. And of course, after a busy midweek, we will have our recap and awards. Sounds good. Let's start with our midweek reviews. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time in association with Paddy Power. RB Leipzig gift shop? Yeah, uh, I want to return a player. Uh, he's not working. He was supposed to help me achieve my goals, but I don't think he even knows what a goal is. Ah, yeah. Well, uh, all I can say is that he was just fine working when he was to London dispatched. Oh. Lampard and Chelsea can't seem to get their money back, but you can with Paddy Power's Acker Cracker. If one leg of your four plus fold Acker lets you down, get a free bet on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10. Min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. Midweek reviews then, and if you've not joined us before, this is where we take a player, manager and the team of the midweek from all three leagues. And Ali, you are kicking us off with the championship and the player of the midweek. Yes, a lovely football player winning a lovely award. John Swift 
of Reading is our championship player of the midweek. 3-0 win for Reading, comfortable in the end after a bit of a hairy start. And John Swift is back from a long-term hamstring injury now. He's been eased back in since his return. This was his fourth start and Reading have won all four of those games. He's found a lovely spot in Paunovic's 4-2-3-1 formation, which was already um, high performing before his return. He didn't come back and break up the Rinomota-Laurent partnership at the base of midfield, but he did go straight into the number 10 slot. And now he can focus on doing what John Swift does best. And that's what he showed on Tuesday night, finding space anywhere on the pitch, really. Sole responsibility to create chances, to, to use that vision and passing range to play balls through for Lucas Schwau, as he did for Zhao's goal to make it 1-0, to drift left and combine with Ajaria, try and create overloads on the left side or on the right side, combining with Elise. It really is a, a, a really exciting team to watch at the moment, Reading. Oh, and uh, he can score a, the odd 35-yard <laughs> rocket of a free kick as well. This was one where, as he lined it up, you sort of wondered why he was bothering to shoot from there when he could retain possession or, or maybe try and deliver a, a good quality ball into the box. And then as you see it swerve into the top corner, you realise that Swift has just got next level technique uh, and should be allowed now to hit them from anywhere within 40 yards. <laughs> Goalkeepers beware. I think it's an interesting one. A player coming back from a long-term injury is often described as a new signing and it's easy to roll your eyes at that. I think in this instance, it's true really. With Swift missing the first chunk of the season and returning to fill a place in a team that was performing well, but certainly could do with an upgrade in the number 10 position. No offence to Semedo, but he's not as creative and technical as Swift. Well, I, I can't imagine Reading could have signed anyone better than Swift to improve the team in January. So Swift, player of the midweek, hoping for a really strong end to the season from him. And just special mentions to Seni Dieng in goal for QPR, Jordan Hugel, who scored two for Norwich, and Watford's defender Sierra Alta, who's come into the side and looks really assured indeed. That's our player of the midweek in the champ. What about the manager, George? I always like to go for managers who've had a bit of a tough time, who've been facing <laughs> up to some criticism and have proved the doubters wrong. And this week, that is Gary Rowett, the Millwall boss, who got a very important and very much needed win in midweek. Uh, a 1-0 victory that came thanks to a Scott Malone early strike at Huddersfield. And then they were able to kind of sit on that win throughout and weren't really too stretched by Huddersfield. The Huddersfield side, the under Carlos Corbran, we we know like to attack. They have attacking players. They've scored a fair few goals this season, especially at home. But Millwall coming into this had won just one of their last 15. And, you know, coming into a game against the Huddersfield side who are in a similar position to Millwall, where at the moment they're not in the relegation scrap, but a few bad results would certainly bring them down. And, and we've spoken before on podcasts about how enjoyable it is to see a left back or a left wing back assisting for a right wing back or vice versa. What I loved about the Scott Malone goal is you've got the left back popping up on the right hand side with a great finish set up by Dan McNamara, who's the right wing back on the left hand side as well. So they even switched positions for, for the goal. Uh, Dan McNamara. Fluid. Uh, exactly. A, a really interesting player as well. Someone who spent the first half of the season on loan at St. Johnston. Uh, in Scotland, having had a few loan spells around, not necessarily someone who, you know, we, we thought would have the championship quality to come straight into the side, but, but Gary Rowett during a, a time where 
maybe certain players such as Marlon Romeo struggling for form and fitness. Uh, it's called a McNamara who's come in here and, and got the assist for a really important win. For, as I said, Fraser Campbell did hit the crossbar with a penalty, which was an opportunity for Huddersfield to get back in the game. But the way that Mill will manage this uh, was really impressive. Um, they put in a couple of performances in the last week or so where they haven't necessarily got the results they deserved. They were very good away at Bournemouth uh, last midweek in getting a one-all draw. Um, but this was a win that they needed, that they deserved. And for Rowett, who you know has come under fire in the last few weeks, I mean, he has been very vocal in saying that Millwall, probably the, the team above any other who miss fans at home, who, who lack that home advantage that they get from from the uh, the atmosphere at the Den, um, he is he needed this win um, because the, the expectations this season weren't just to, to ward off relegation. And fingers crossed on the back of this really solid performance, they can continue to push back up the table. Big relief in his post-match as well. You could tell our determination was monumental, said Gary Rowett. Fair Correct. play. Hopefully they yeah. can kick on now. Our team of the week is Norwich City, the team sitting very pretty at the top of the championship. I think for this award, sometimes you lean towards teams with the most surprising results or maybe the most unexpected wins. But sometimes you just have to accept that the team at the top of the table, winning a home game 2-0, about as comfortably as you can, were easily this division's team of the week. I mean, they toyed with Bristol City at times, Norwich, who Bristol City just couldn't get near their box, basically. Um, Gibson and Hanley at the heart of defence with Cruel behind them. They've all suffered little injuries at times this season. So they've only played 10 games or they've only started 10 games together. And I note that they've won eight of those and drawn only two. So that centre-back pairing with Cruel behind them seems to be absolutely crucial for Norwich's defensive record. On the ball, we knew this already, but they're excellent and they're seemingly getting better. Their passing and movement is, is a joy to watch. And look, they're such a threat through the middle with the nominal wide players, Buendia and Campwell, really doing their best work within the, the confines, well, within the penalty box, essentially, or within the narrowness of the box. But it means that Aarons, who set up the second goal, Sorensen, the left-back, um, have so much time and space. And when they're on form as well, it's very difficult to defend against. They're in that glorious situation, Norwich, where after a win like this, you can pretty much go through the whole team, pick out each individual and give them special praise for their contributions. And I think that speaks to where they are at the moment uh, and to the, the team that Farker and Stuart Webber, the sporting director, have built. I'm really excited to see their new signing, left-back, who came in from Greece, Dimitris Yanoulis. I mean, great reports coming out of Greece and for those who have watched this player that, you know, as an as a energetic, attack-minded left-back, he could make their team even more complete and balanced because Sorensen, who's been excellent, is more of a central midfield player and a right-footer. So to have a left-footer on that side with the energy to, to get to the byline like Aaron's does on the other side, it could make them even better. At Norwich, comfortable as you like on Wednesday night, top of the league with nine points between themselves and third but also in the best form in the league over the last 10 games. It's pretty ominous signs for everyone else. We're almost at the point where there's only one other automatic promotion spot to go for, but not quite Ooh, yet. Norwich City, our, words. <laughs> Norwich City, our team of the week. Okay, time for the League One awards, George. There were seven games in League One, but quite a lot of action, really, and a couple of contenders for Player of the Week, but you can't ignore a hat-trick hero. Well, no, you can't, because I wrote down a couple of contenders on our shared document. And by the time I came back to it this morning, you deleted the other one. So <laughs> even though it's my segment, uh, yeah, of course. An executive decision. Of course, it's Joe Mason with a first half hat trick. And 
There are loads of, of really nice um, little bits to this story because Joe Mason's a player who was released at the end of last season by MK Dons and then he was re-signed by Russell Martin after <laughs> a few weeks. Presumably the wage demands came down a bit and they were happy to bring him back on board. He, he's a player who should be very good at League One level, in my opinion. I mean, I've seen him play last season for MK Dons and he looked pretty much the best player on the pitch at that time and he's got that calibre as well. But for some reason, it hasn't really happened for him. But this is a big moment for him now, this stage of the season, because Carlton Morris has moved on. So there is a, a vacancy up front to play alongside Cameron Jerome. Of course, MK Dons have brought in Charlie Brown from, from Chelsea, um, who would have watched Joe Mason's first half hat-trick from the bench, probably a little bit despondent that the guy who's come in, <laughs> probably just in the temporary until he's ready to play, has gone and done this, because it was a fantastic hat-trick against Fleetwood. All three goals, really, really impressive. The first was a great touch and finish just inside the box. The third was just, um, you know, just persistent running in behind, making the most of an error. It was the second goal that I really liked here, where Mason pressed, um, I can't remember which Fleetwood player it was, but pressed him just outside the box, tackles him. The ball's picked up by Fraser, laid off to Mason, who plays a lovely finish in the top left-hand corner. But my favourite thing about this was that we have been treated this season, you know, sadly fans aren't in, in stadiums, but we've been treated to being able to hear a bit more of what's going on on the pitch um, in terms of manager screams or what players are saying. Like, you know, I spoke about the Fraser Campbell missed penalty, an incredible scream from him after that yesterday. But the key one here was that when Mason pressed and tackled and won the ball back, somebody on the uh, on the MK Don's bench, you can hear so clearly, screams, thanks, Joe Mason. Yes, Joe Mason. And then Mason shoots and he scores, which is just something we would never normally be able to see. You know, these were his first goals since the second day of the season against Lincoln. And again, they lost 2-1. It was a faultless match-winning display for a side who, you know, who, who need a striker who can put the ball in the back of the net because we've seen too often this season that the good performances aren't backed up by three points. So well done, Joe Mason. Easily our player of the week with his first half hat-trick. Thanks, George Ellick. Yes, George Ellick. <laughs> Manager of the week in League One is Grant McCann, whose team sit atop the table. Now that's partly because Lincoln City did not play in midweek, but Hull are top of the tree. They beat Accrington 3-0. And Grant McCann's an interesting one because he oversaw that desperate relegation last season, the second half of that campaign, one of the worst we've seen from any team in the EFL, certainly in the last five years or so. And maybe because of, of the hangover from that, he always has the same things crop up after one or two defeats, that he's not good enough to manage this side, that he doesn't adapt and that there are these special managers out there at League One level who are constantly adapting and picking up tons of wins. And, you know, it's fair to say that Hull haven't been good in every single game this season, but 13 wins out of 22 games isn't bad at all and I think he deserves a little more credit at times. In this game it was a quiet first half hour against an Accrington side who have had a really good run but maybe just stuttering slightly the, the enormity of their task just in terms of making up the games that they lost due to a Covid outbreak uh, and some dodgy pitches uh, is, is kind of looming large for Stanley but Hull turned it on after the half hour mark. Malik Wilkes an absolute menace as he is so often at League One level and a debut goal from Gavin White as well, which would have been nice to see. Hakeem Adelikan being recalled by Bristol City would have been a blow, but in signing White and Dan Crowley as a different type of player from what they have, creative number 10 type, um, they've certainly tooled up for the run-in. Uh, an impressive 3-0 win uh, and the 10th time this season they've won without conceding. You know, John Coleman's Accrington side have made a habit 
out of getting the better of teams with bigger budgets and bigger name players. But that wasn't the case here. To beat them 3-0 speaks to a quality performance. So away to Portsmouth and Accrington again next up for Hull. Big tests for Grant McCann. He's now the one at the top of the tree there to be shot at in League One. But he's certainly our manager of the week here. So team of the week, I think we should probably have a rule on this podcast, Ali, where any team who stops a Sunderland game from being one all should immediately <laughs> win team of the week because this felt like it was following a very similar pattern. Uh, Sunderland playing against Plymouth Argyle. Argyle take the lead after 11 minutes with a really nice um, team move. Adam Lewis getting the finishing touch, a player scoring on his first start on loan from Liverpool, having spent the first half of the season on loan at Amiens in France. Interesting to see how that's going to end. Sunderland created all the chances after that. Um, no question about that. They, As I say, it was a game we've seen so many times. Sunderland going behind, pushing, getting level at one all, and we thought we knew what was going to happen after that, as ever. But... Plymouth went down the other end and Joe Edwards scored a really nice finish to make it 2-1. And it was comfortable after that as well. I mean, they only had three shots in the game. I'm not here saying that Plymouth Argyle by any stretch turned up at Sunderland and played them off the park. But this is a Sunderland side who last time we saw them went to Plough Lane and beat AFC Wimbledon very convincingly 3-0 with a Charlie White hat trick. A Sunderland who are somewhat buoyant given the recent managerial appointment of Lee Johnson. It must be said that the pitch of the Stadium of Light, I mean, I know that loads of pitches around the country at the moment are really suffering, but this um, really wasn't good and didn't really suit any kind of play style of football, that especially Sunderland are trying to employ at the moment, a passing style. But for Argyle, it's a big win for them. Uh, it's another show that that poor run we saw a few weeks ago is now over and that Argyle fans shouldn't be too worried about them going forward. And, you know, the fact remains that even if Sunderland aren't one of the top teams in the division at the moment on the league table, uh, going to the Stadium of Light is always uh, an impressive three points to come back with. So credit to Plymouth Argyle, our team of the week in League One. I thought you were going to say that the, the rule is now that any team that wins after a 400-mile bus journey should yeah, automatically win Team of the Week. That's also true, yes. It would be, I mean, it would put Plymouth and Exeter in a very good position to win a lot of uh, a lot of midweek awards, I tell you. Mm. In League Two, our player of the midweek is Tom King, Newport County's goalkeeper. And it's pretty simple because he scored a goal. And a goalie <laughs> scoring a goal, you cannot ignore that and you can't deny the award, I think. Uh, it was 12 minutes past seven when the whispers started. Uh, Tom King's just scored, I heard. Um, sorry, I think you mean Josh King playing for Bournemouth, right? <laughs> no, no, Tom King. Okay, I mean, that's got to be a vidi printer issue, doesn't it? Tom King's not going to score. He's the he's 10 minutes in, he's the Newport <laughs> keeper. No, no. Very much did. Then we see the clip roll in on Gillette Soccer Saturday or Soccer Special as it is on a Tuesday. An actual goal kick flying heavily wind assisted for sure, bouncing on the edge of the D at the other end and over poor Griffiths in the Cheltenham goal. It's always a magnificent sight, isn't it? King gave it the customary low-key celebration, which always upsets fans. Like, keepers should be going mad. It's only going to happen once in his career, surely. But I think there's some sort of goalkeeper's union thing, isn't there, where you often hear goalies say, well, I, I, I can see how it would happen to me at the other end, and it's a bit embarrassing, and I don't want to overdo it. So fair play to Tom King. A little thumbs up to the bench was about as much as we got, and he jumped up and, and tapped his crossbar as well. And League Two's the place to be for goalie goals, by the way, George. Uh, we, we were trying to work out when the last one was. Turns out in 2015-16, and this had 
been banished from my mind. There were two goalie goals in League Two. Yessi uh, Yeronen for Stevenage against Wickham. That one was a clearance from just outside his box. Similarly caught the wind and bounced over the goalie. But Barry Roach of Morecambe as well scored a header from a corner to snatch a point against Pompey. Uh, so there you go. This is where it all happens. I should also say that King made one excellent save from Alfie May. And if he wasn't our player of the week, I would probably say that he could have done better with Cheltenham's goal. It was a one-all draw, but he played well and a key contribution with Newport's only goal of the game. Now all we need is someone to, to score, or a goalkeeper specifically, to score a, a free kick or even a penalty. I'm not sure how likely that is. I know that Joseph Bursick took a couple of free kicks, direct free kicks, for Accrington last season, but that was in the EFL trophy. And I, I don't think Michael O'Neill will be allowing it for Bursick at Stoke anytime soon. But Tom King, the goalkeeper who scored a goal on Tuesday night for Newport County, comfortably our player of the week. Uh, what about our manager of the week in League Two, George? There weren't actually that many games and no. there weren't actually that many teams that won. So it's, <laughs> you know, I don't want to missell things, but it's, it's slim pickings. No, don't take this away from <laughs> Keith Hill. He's, he's fully deserving of it. I, I said I like to give managers credit when they've had a tough time and, and Keith Hill has come in for some early fire um, at Tranmere. Um, I was very vocal when he was appointed saying I thought it was a good appointment. A lot of Tranmere fans were pretty underwhelmed. Uh, we had a tweet quite recently saying, do you still think Tranmere fans are going to come around to Keith Hill? Because the early signs aren't good. Well, how about beating Forest Green 3-2 at home, for, <laughs> to, to put it right? And, you know, I think Tranmere fans had every right to be a little bit disappointed. They only took two points from three games against Bradford, Barrow and Stevenage before this. I think... Probably before those games, Tramway fans looked at those three thinking, right, this is our opportunity to really get in amongst that top seven mix. And, and they didn't take it. But Forrest Green are, are one of the best travellers in League Two. They've took 19 points from their 11 previous away games uh, before this one. And Tramway were good value for their lead. Again, three nice goals. All three of them preceded by some interesting, intricate passing play before breaking through the high the high line. My favourite of the lot was James Vaughan's goal, the second goal, where quite often if I'm playing um, in the park with my nephews, there's a rule that I'm not allowed to score. So what I'll try and do is I'll get to the goal <laughs> and I'll just kick it as hard as I can at my nephew's legs and hope to get, get an own goal. And that's kind Classy. of how... That's, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the only way I can score. But that's... I mean, it often ends in tears too. But that's how... Um, that's kind of what happened with Vaughan's goal, where I don't think Vaughan had any idea what had happened. He was waiting in the box. The cross was hit so hard, it just smacked his shins and went in the back of the net. <laughs> Job done. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big win for Tranmere. It's a big win for, for Keith Hill to show that he is getting a tune out of this Tranmere side, especially against difficult opposition, who they are trying to make ground on. So Tranmere fans will hope this is the beginning of a, of a better era under Hill, uh, and he deserves the credit. Okay, our team of the week is Cambridge United. And full disclosure, this is by default. We've already talked about Tranmere and Cambridge, the only other side that won in midweek in the reduced slate of fixtures in League Two. And to be honest, at halftime, you might have had Cambridge down for worst performance in the midweek. They were 1-0 down to Southend and they were looking pretty lost. Now, some people at the game have suggested that the wind really did play a big factor. And I think we all know even from Sunday league football, that when you're against the wind, it's very difficult. And all of a sudden you play a lot better in the second half. And maybe it's something <laughs> that's been said at half time and maybe it's a tactical tweak, but sometimes it's just nature. Um, <laughs> either way, Cambridge certainly got a, a second wind in the second half. They seized control of the game and they had a pretty good time with it. Iredale and Ironside unleashing their ire on a South End side that had only lost one in eight. So an impressive turnaround win. And you know what? 
Cambridge are now our league leaders in League Two, a little bit under the radar, I think. They have played a couple games more than many of the contenders around them, but they've got the points on the board and they're the ones to catch now. So Cambridge United, 2-1 winners at Southend, our League Two Team of the Week. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Time to talk transfers as it is January after all. And this week we are getting some inside knowledge from David Webb, who has worked at many clubs such as Spurs, Millwall, Bournemouth, and most recently was head of football operations at Huddersfield. And he's someone who knows exactly what a transfer window in January is like. And Ali, you caught up with David earlier on. A big one to start with, really, the January transfer window, a time where we're all very excited about our teams adding players. But as someone who's been on the inside, how hard is it to find value and that short term boost, that short term quality? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, January is particularly difficult, especially more on the transfer side, because a lot of clubs don't want to let go of their sort of key players midway through the season for various reasons. So it's real hard to get that absolute nailed on quality if you're lacking in a certain position, maybe goals or you're challenging for promotion or trying to survive relegation. Especially for the championship, I would say you can find value sort of really good in the loan system from sort of clubs above, which are, which is always a good route if you're going to add that little bit of extra sort of youth, exuberance and quality into your squad. And I look at teams like, um, sort of teams like Cardiff that have, delved into League One, League Two, you know, two young, promising young players in NG, in NG and Max Walters. So you're looking for players to come in and make an instant impact. But I think, with, especially with young players and Cardiff having sort of a steady season in the Championship, with, with an impact of a club like that, where it's, it's no real risk to these young players coming in because they've got time to develop and settle, I think the real pressure becomes when, if you're a Championship club, for example, and you are, say, like a Bournemouth or a Swansea, you look at sort of the, the signings they've made in Conor Hulan and Jack Wiltshire, they're established Premier League players. So they're obviously trying to get to the promised land back again with those sort of quality and depth for their signings. So I think each club will have their own, especially championship clubs, um, will have their own individual view of what what is going to impact their squad respectively. That's interesting. And kind of from what you've said there, it, it, it can be dependent on what their current situation is, you know, in terms of this season. I mean, you were head of op- head of football operations at Huddersfield last January in the transfer window. It was the first transfer window under Danny Cowley's management as well. How did you guys approach that? You were five points outside the relegation zone, having slowly moved up the table in the in the previous months. What was the plan there? How did you go about it? Huddersfield that season when they come down had gone for a very difficult transition from Premier League to Championship and before Danny come in 
the team hadn't won a game in 19, 18, 19 games, I believe. So being in the predicament Huddersfield was sort of around the January um, transfer window, but we felt that we needed a mix, really, of some leadership to help us carry on sort of the fight to the end of the season, some experience. So we went down the road of Andy King and Richard Stearman um, to add that stability in sort of key central areas. But then we still wanted to maintain of sort of a young, exuberant, exciting young talent as well. And we was desperate because Pritchard, Alex Pritchard had been, you know, suffering from injuries and we felt we missed that creative link. So we was fortunate enough to get Emil Smith Rowe in from Arsenal, who could play sort of a number of those positions, fulfill those needs. And also we felt we needed a little bit more pace in the wide areas. So um, we got Chris Woodock, who was unknown uh, from Benfica at the time. It was a needs basis in terms of positions and also experience, quality, and and also a trusted source as well for Danny. Because we was we only had one left back. We took in Harry Toffolo from Lincoln, which was, a you know, for, for Danny, he's a player that he knew well, knew, knows his game and his character inside out. Mm. Just tell me about how you came to sign Emil Smith-Rowe because it's obviously very topical at the moment. He's burst into the Arsenal team, three assists in five games. Um, how did you persuade Arsenal to let their one of their star young talents join Huddersfield in the midst of a, of a, a tiring and, and um, yeah, a difficult championship campaign? Yeah, Emil, um, we were very, very lucky to get Emil. I've known Emil since my time when I was head of elite at Tottenham and I tried to sign him when he was a 16-year-old from Arsenal and I followed his progression um, very closely from there. So we had to go to Arsenal and present our case of, you know, how we see Emil and where we could fit in and add value to our squad and also how we were going to develop and nurture his progress as well, which is which is key for, for Arsenal's long-term development plan. And I felt... We had a really good case because Emil, you know, come through Arsenal, played at elite level. We've been through the England under 17th, 18th, 19th system at Red Bull Leipzig. This was a completely different challenge for him coming into Huddersfield where you're in the midst of a relegation battle. It, the style of football is completely different. The environment's completely different. But we felt that'd be really good for not only his football development to play a different style and a different game, but his character as well because coming into the brutality of the championship at that stage of the season where Huddersfield are fighting for every point every game and playing most weeks two games weeks would have been a real test for him so Arsenal sort of agreed at that of all the clubs that were like looking at a mill there was a number of championship clubs and clubs German clubs from abroad they um, they felt that even though our current position that would be the best fit for him because that would give him something that he probably hasn't experienced before. And that's the willingness to sort of work and press and battle and do all the work off the ball to complement, you know, his characteristics on the ball. So, and it, and it ended up being a great fit all round. You know, Emil's flourishing now and quite rightly so. He's a you know top quality young talent and Arsenal were very happy with the way Huddersfield was at the time sort of looked after him as we said we were going to do. So it's always a it's always a two-way agreement and and the top clubs can have their pick of championship clubs and it's always for them where they see the best fit for their potential assets of the future. 
hugely valuable for championship clubs as well. Everyone wants a, a Smith Rowe or in current terms, a Mark Gwehi or a, or a Harvey Elliott. Um, just before we let you go, I, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on a couple of deals that have gone through in the last few days in the championship. One of them involves uh, your former club uh, in Bournemouth picking up Jack Wilshire. Uh, slightly out the blue, this one. What are your thoughts on this signing? Yeah, yeah, it's... Um... It wasn't a majorly big surprise for myself because knowing Bournemouth as I do and their ambitions to get back to the Premier League, they they was never going to go for strengthening loads of areas in, in this particular window. They just wanted to add sort of real top quality. And I think the advantage Bournemouth had with someone like Jack is he'd been on loan there before in the Premier League. So for him, he was just like he was coming back to a club he knows, he's familiar with. He knows Jason and Steve Perch, the you know the coaching team there. He know he probably you know has worked with a lot of the players, and he can add real value and experience, especially when your Bournemouth's ambitions is to get back to the Premier League. So a very very good sign in that for you know for their hopes and you know dreams of getting back up to the Premier League when you add someone of Jack's quality into your squad. Uh, and secondly, someone who certainly hasn't played at as high a level as Jack Wilshire, but a player in Andre Green who's been picked up by Sheffield Wednesday, uh, someone who's been across uh, elite academy level football for a long time now. You must have come across Andre Green because he was highly rated player at Villa, wasn't he? And, and maybe has ne- never truly found his place at senior level yet? No, no, he's... He's he's had various low moves at Cholton, Portsmouth, Preston. So he's had experience, but he probably hasn't had the game time to warrant to warrant that uh, so far through for sort of various injuries through um, and maybe some other reasons sort of internally. But in terms of his in terms of his talent and his quality, again, he was another player that um, at Tottenham who tried to sign when he sort of broke in and around sort of first team training camp at Villa at 16. Mm. Um, so, so what did you see all... in him? What What did you love about him then? He was a very exciting young player. He was um, technically very good. He was he was very quick. He could he was multifunctional in terms of his position. So he could play on either sides in a front three or a four two three one. Sometimes he could even play behind the striker. And his movement, he had real clever movement as well. So his profile was sort of really, really interesting to the way Tottenham like their attacking players to play because he could move very well off the ball as well as having the qualities on the ball. So he was someone at the time that sort of when we was at my job looking at ahead of a lead, he was someone that certainly could have, we felt, could have come in and at least had the um, qualities to train in Maurizio's first team squad and gain some experience and work his way through potentially. David Webb there, former head of football operations at Huddersfield and and a a man who's held a lot of roles at different clubs. And, and, you know, what stood out for me, Ali, there was was just, you know, the the short-term thinking, I guess. Like, it feels like everything has to be so, so reactive in January. Yeah, and I think, and I only really thought this after talking to David, that that's okay. Like, as long as you're at peace with it and you understand 
what the transfer window is and what it can do for you, but more specifically, what it probably won't do for you in terms of long-term squad building and, and, and adding players who will contribute to your team long-term beyond just the this season. I think you can still do really well out of it, but... I think there are still teams that that try and treat it like a summer window or who make really last minute decisions and maybe convince themselves that they will be good for the club long term. But I I actually went back and looked at last January in the championship and just wanted to look at how many players that signed because teams generally do add two or three players, some teams four or five, some teams just one or two. And, you know, there's heavy weighting towards loan deals now um, for obvious reasons. And that will be the case again this window. But it's very rare that a player that you sign in January actually contributes to your team beyond the season that you sign them. So of the January signings from from last year in the championship, you've got Toffolo at Huddersfield, who's still a key part of that team. Uh, Naki Wells joined Bristol City, and, and he's very much part of their first team. You've got Bielkowski, who Millwall signed, and, and Sol Bauer, who, who Barnsley signed. Thompson as well for Stoke. He's is he a key player? I'm not sure, but he's certainly a first team player. And then there's a group of guys who were signed on loan and their loans were made permanent, like Josh Windass, James Chester, Malik Wilkes, obviously now with Hull in League One, Scott Hogan, uh, Scott Sinclair as well, I should shout out, was signed last January. And he obviously scored the winner for, for Preston the other night. So clearly is proving like a good signing long term. But generally, these players do not either stay at the club longer than six months or they become... Uh, they just kind of become unneeded. It, it's it's as David said. It's difficult to to get players that are anything other than unwanted, and the reason why they're unwanted is often because they haven't been performing. So, my main takeaway from that, or one of them anyway, was I think if you can make peace with the short term nature of it, and if you really understand what your short term objectives are, then you can start to to find the right players. But I still think there are teams who don't do that and still make poor decisions in the January transfer window that in six months time end up as a, a weight around their neck, you know, big wages mm. that they can't shift or or players who aren't just underperforming, but never perform for their team. So really interesting part of that chat, I thought. And the other side as well with someone whose life has been dedicated in career terms to judging talent and trying to pluck talent out of academy football, George. That was a really strong theme throughout. Yeah, it was. And, and that's kind of what surprised me, I guess, was, you know, you mentioned Emile Smith-Rowe and we spoke about Willock and, and, and Andre Green. And it's the fact that these players only come on to our, our awareness when they are ready for first team football. And we still think of that as being a pretty young time to to get involved and start judging them. Whereas David Webb's known about these guys for years. I mean, he's he's been thinking about signing these players for Tottenham when they were teenagers. Um, and it just goes to show that an understanding of the academy system and an understanding of these players from a very young age can set you in incredibly good stead to capitalise if these players don't necessarily make the grade or when they are making the grade, but in the loan market too. Um, you know, we've often spoken about Michael Appleton and, and his use of the academy, um, his academy knowledge. And listening to David Webb there, I think it would be something that clubs have to rely on because understanding both the personalities and the skill sets of these players could give you a head start going forward. So really interesting to hear from David. I'm intrigued to know where he's going to end up next. And it definitely gave some extra insight into the January transfer window, something we're all pretty familiar with, um, but I think has a lot of key differences to, to the summer. 
Andre Green's an interesting one. That's what we finished with. Uh, he's signed for Sheffield Wednesday. Nancy Frostick's written a, a brilliant profile piece on him on the Athletic site, which I would suggest that you go and read. I guess with someone like Andre Green, you know, David Webb said at 16, he was a standout player in his age group. At 22, we're talking about a player that isn't fulfilling that potential. And, and there are different schools of thought. Some people look at a player and say, well, just didn't translate to senior football or didn't have the right mentality. But we do see players develop later than others and maybe need some time to find a home. So I've still got high hopes for Andre Green and hopefully Sheffield Wednesday will be the place where he starts to thrive. But thank you to David for joining us. That was really great to chat transfers with him. We'll do more stuff on transfers on this show next week. But next, it's time for our weekend preview in association with Paddy Power. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Next up, well, it's a big weekend ahead. FA Cup fourth round for some, Championship League One and League Two for others. It's the EFL that we're focusing on here. We're going to leave the trophy to others. And as ever, we begin in the Championship. George, for our game of the weekend, it's time to hit the Neil Warnock button. Yeah, it absolutely is. Borough against Blackburn and... You know, I watched Middlesbrough's performance against Birmingham on the weekend and it was really disappointing. It was kind of everything that I wasn't expecting to see from a Neil Warnock Borough side. I mean, Warnock has made comparisons this season at times to his his team's style of football to Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds, which uh, I think is somewhat um, tongue-in-cheek from Warnock. But there is an element of truth in terms of the, the intensity that they play with and, and the lack of time they give the opposition. But it wasn't really there. Uh, in this game on uh, last weekend. They were largely poor. Birmingham enjoyed the better of the first half. And I was wondering, have I got this Middlesbrough team wrong? Have I got this wrong? Are they actually not one of the better teams in the division on their way up? But fool was I to be doubting Neil Warnock because <laughs> they put in a really excellent display away at Nottingham Forest in midweek. They they changed the team up. Asombalonga, Watmore and Housen all came into the starting lineup, And... Um, they blew Forest apart, basically. They won the shot count 16-5. Uh, Longa put them ahead pretty early on in the first half and it was comfortable until George Savile made it 2-0 only for a consolation goal from Forest to take the, the gloss off the scoreline a little bit. Um, and this is more what, we, what we've come to expect. The level of performances from certain players so high. Taverni on the right-hand side got an assist early on and was gave um, Ribeiro a torrid night on the right-hand side for Borough throughout the evening. Uh, they were just looking incredibly secure in terms of, of not creating too many good opportunities, too many good chances. Asamba Longa again getting amongst the goals. Warnock has brought back a much uh, improved Asamba Longa to what we had been used to over the past couple of seasons. And this is an important game for them. It's a return. You know, their home form this season had been so good until that Birmingham performance and result. And they come up against the Blackburn side who... I'd say similarly to Borough, will feel like they're probably in a bit of a false position, who will feel like they should be further up the table and will certainly feel like going on this season, they could still get up there. 
Yeah, but those are those can be quite complacent thoughts. That they happen to be thoughts that I agree with. I, I think <laughs> Rovers are good enough to move up the table. But the longer you keep saying that, you know, the the, the weaker your argument becomes. This this Rovers side have have only won two of their last nine league games, and I think the fans are, are a little restless, understandably so, because early season performances gave them hope that this team could really kick on from last season, challenge for the playoffs and and do it in a really exciting attacking fashion. Um, it's definitely worth noting and giving Mowbray, I think, credit for the fact that they are, in my eyes anyway, definitely a better team than last season. I still think there's a good run coming, but there are issues there. They've got to show more composure in the final third and they've got to tighten up defensively especially from set pieces where they've really struggled recently. Neil Warnock will know all about that. Paddy McNair's set piece delivery is wicked and that will be a big test for Rovers this weekend. The good news in recent weeks, the addition of Jared Branthwaite, young centre-back on loan from Everton, a former Carlisle player. Um, He's got the sort of size and composure on the ball that looks really exciting if he can get up to speed quickly. Obviously, the return from injury of, of Bradley Dack and Lewis Travis, key men from previous seasons who have been out for the whole of this season. These are positives, but they need to fit these players into the system. Does the system itself need tweaking anyway? I mean, there, there's a lot for, for Mowbray to chew on. I'm sure he'll be um, having sleepless nights at the moment, just trying to work out how to get things to click. But I'm looking forward to watching this game. I think we can pretty much predict how it'll play out. I, I expect both teams will be happy with Rovers having the majority of the ball. Middlesbrough will look to to limit them to pot shots and then will spring swift counter-attacks and play for set pieces to try and cause them problems as well. So it should be a bit of a cat and mouse game, which, you know, sometimes those games can be a bit boring, but I think in the right spirit and with two teams performing well, they can be really, really interesting. So Rovers will have to box clever here as well as play with that attacking zeal that we've seen from them. But it should be a good game, Borough Blackburn, uh, this hmm. weekend. George, what do Paddy Power think about this one? Yeah, Middlesbrough, the home side, just about the favourite at 29 to 20. The draw is 2 to 1 and Blackburn 19 to 10 to pile on the home misery for Borough. In League One, really tasty affair. Couldn't be anything else other than Pompey. Couldn't be tastier. <laughs> Couldn't be tastier. Pompey against Hull, two teams at the very top of the table. Hull top with 42 from 22 games. Portsmouth one point behind with a game in hand. And Lincoln sandwiched in between them, uh, of course. George, you're going to take a look at, at Pompey here. They're in excellent form at the moment. Yeah, last time you said something couldn't be tastier, it was sitting over a pizza in Dublin. <laughs> and let's hope this one this one lives up to that, because I know how fond of that pizza you were. Um, yeah, Pompey against Hull and, and Pompey continue just to kind of blitz everything in front of them. They come into this game having won five of their last six. They've kept clean sheets in all six. They've only lost two of their last 15 games when these two sides met. A few weeks ago, Pompey ran out winners at Hull despite not even having a shot on target. They didn't even win one nil either. It was 2-0 thanks to two own goals. (laughs) And that kind of sums Portsmouth up because whilst Pompey fans may not love the style of football that they play, they are incredibly adept at keeping sides at bay. They're clinical going forward as well. Um, You know, the the Harness-Williams-Marquis-Curtis quartet up front um, has so many facets by which to hurt opposition sides, especially for a team who play on the counter. And all of them are full of goals and creativity and assists. But I think it's it's important to point out here how good Pompey's defence is. I mean, Watmore and Raggett uh, are becoming 
what Burgess and Raggett were last season now. These two have a really good understanding at the back. McGillivray is a, is a brilliant League One keeper. We've known that for a long time. And then Johnson and Brown as fullbacks too. It, it, it is a team who have quite clear attacking and defensive units. It's not particularly fluid at all, but they're very happy out of possession. And when they do spring forward, it is effective. Uh, Michael Jacobs has returned from injury as well, which has been quite timely given Ronan Curtis has had some absence through coronavirus. Um, and Curtis did come off the bench for the 4-0 win over Wimbledon as well. So a, a good selection headache, it's worth saying, for Jacket. But I mean, Hull are a side who have shown consistently they're one of the best two in, in League One. And they've often, as we saw in the Actington game, I'm sure you're going to tell us about, they can blast teams away as well. But I find it very hard to believe that any team in League One at the moment could do that to this Pompey side because they are just so solid. <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I've already told you about that 3-0 win against Accrington. <laughs> Grant McCann having been our, our manager of the midweek. Yeah, I mean, I'm not 100% where I stand on Hull. Uh, for full disclosure, I was pretty bullish about Grant McCann and and supporting him because of their their place in the table in the face of what I consider to be pretty unfair criticism. But I'm not sure if I fully trust this Hull side heading into this game. They've had a really a really tough run of games. Their last four, they've played Charlton, Sunderland, Blackpool, and Accrington, and they've won two and lost two. So I mean. I, it's just like a, a an underlying, almost like intangible feeling that I can't fully trust Hull. Uh, they they chucked in a poor performance in the reverse fixture, that 2-0 win. Uh, and they, they weren't great against Peterborough. They were thrashed by Fleetwood. Maybe these games are kind of at the forefront of my mind. A couple of them were live on Sky. So maybe that's um, why I keep coming back to them. I think the most important thing for Hull and possibly for Pompey as well is not to lose this game. And that might be not the right mentality for a, an exciting affair. But I think for Hull, look, for the most part, they've been good in defence and they've been comfortable out of possession. And I just think if you can try and draw Pompey onto you, you will have to defend strongly against that front four that you spoke about. But if you can draw Pompey onto you and then find the likes of Wilkes and Gavin White and Lewis Potter on the break, I think that's probably a better way to approach this game in order not to lose um, than to really try and take the game to Pompey. So I, I kind of suspect that with both sides playing similar formations, similar styles, there, there's an extent to which this game could be one where they cancel each other out, where individual battles will be key. And I think it'll be a game with few chances. So I'd probably I'd probably pick a draw if, if push came to shove, but it's a fascinating fixture and I can't wait to see how it will play out. Paddy Power have... The home side, Portsmouth, as the favourites at 11 to 8. Hull at 2 to 1 to win the game and the draw 21 to 20. OK, let's finish off, George, and head into the weekend by talking about a ginormous game in League Two. Scunthorpe against Grimsby. Not just a local derby with big bragging rights at stake, but also a proper relegation scrap with just two points between these sides. Grimsby are not long into the second reign of Paul Hurst. How are they shaping up for this one? Not very well, I'm afraid to say. Uh, they haven't won in their last six. I mean, the return of Paul Hurst is certainly cause for optimism uh, in Grimsby, as is the expected takeover, which should be going through in the next couple of weeks. The consortium uh, were at the stadium this week, so it looks like there aren't any hiccups coming there. Touch wood for Grimsby fans. But on the pitch, you know, they, they have to stay up. I mean, to, to make the most of this positivity, Paul Hurst will not want to be managing in the National League next season. The new owners won't want to be buying a team going back down into the non-league. But they've scored just one goal in their last four games. They managed just three shots 
at home to South End. You know, that was a proper relegation clash between the two poorest teams in the division. South End edged a nil-nil draw, but Grimsby offered very, very little. Uh, Keeper James McKeown was the reason that Grimsby managed to hold on to that point and that's not the first time we've said that about them uh, Matty Pollock and Luke Waterfall are the two most important players um, for Grimsby by a stretch at the moment the two centre-backs they are uh, along with the keeper they're so important to this survival bid and they have to find somebody who can put the ball in the back of the net I mean Grimsby the recruitment strategy in the summer under Ian Holloway was um, scattergun, shall we say, to put it politely. They've used 33 players already this season in the league. I mean, that is incredible when you think we're only halfway through. And of those 33 players, the top scorer so far is Matty Pollock, the centre-back with three goals. That is desperate, desperate in terms of attacking output. Matt Green, you know, a, a, a senior player up front, Hasn't been producing the goods. They've had a couple of low knees in as well, but nobody able to find the back of the net consistently. Uh, one possible bright spark is is the return of Max Wright, who's been in and out of the side most of the season, having spent uh, a long time out on loan of the past couple of years. Uh, a, a tricky right winger who was the only you know attacking force of sorts against South End. He, he provided a bit of a bit of width and a bit of trickery on the right hand side. But generally this is this is desperate times for Grimsby. And you know it's gonna take a game like this, a ginormous game, as you said, um, <laughs> to stop the rot because at the moment it's very, very hard to see a way out for them. Yeah, I mean, if I'm honest, mate, 27 miles west of that, things aren't going much better. Um, I've made that journey many times as well. <laughs> there you go. Um Scunthorpe they had a, a run, didn't they? The second half of November, after starting with just four points from their first eight league games, they then had this lovely little burst, 13 points from six, that got them outside of the relegation zone. But since then, six points from nine games, it turns out that their their general level was actually more like the first eight games than it was that little run in mid-November. There are issues all over the place here, and I don't think this is the time to dissect them necessarily. But first and foremost for me, and it sounds like Grimsby have the same issue from what you said, they are desperately poor going forward at Scunthorpe. They, they've got the individuals on paper that you could see being match winners at times. Gilead on the right wing, Aboisa on the left wing, but... At the top of the pitch, they haven't found someone to put the ball in the back of the net consistently. Kevin Von Veen just cannot stay fit at all, and he won't be fit for this game either. So, look, I mean, from what you've said about Grimsby, from what I've said about Scunthorpe, it's hard to make a case for either of them to win this game. Um, I have a weird feeling that it's going to be 1-0 either side, just like it was when these two sides met. A month ago, Grimsby nicked a 1-0 win, Matty Pollock scrambling home from a set piece. I'm hoping for Scunthorpe's purpose that it's them this weekend. I hope that there's a bit of a turnaround on the horizon because to lose twice to Grimsby in a month would be pretty catastrophic, not just for for those local bragging rights, but more significantly for for the relegation battle. So look, it's not a preview full of joy, this one, but (laughs) probably the most jeopardy that there is in any game in any league this weekend in English football, Scunthorpe against Grimsby. Keep your eye on that one, guys. Paddy Power don't really know how to call it either. Scunthorpe are the 5-4 to four favourites. Grimsby the 21-10 to 10 outsiders. The draw at 11-5. to five. Plenty to get excited about this weekend across the EFL. 
That's it for the podcast this week. Thank you for your company today. We appreciate it as ever. And we'll be back next week. But in the meantime, Matt Davis-Adams and the gang will be back on Monday to review the weekend's games. Enjoy your weekend and we'll speak soon. You've been listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and by following at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of The Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places, or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Totally Football League Show is a Money Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.